0: You're listening to Trustees Without Borders. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Our distinguished guests today are Mahir Zainalov and Hamid Bilici, both are journalists from Turkey who are on the Virginia Tech campus sharing insights and information about the state of journalism in their home country, Turkey. From them, we will learn about the monumental shift of Turkey from a democracy to a full-fledged autocracy in just a few short years. We hope to learn from them about the geopolitical, cultural, and social factors that contributed to this change, and about the role of the deteriorating media freedoms in Turkey's drift from its democratic principles. Mahir Zainalaf is a Turkish journalist, and analyst based in Washington DC. He first started his professional career with the Los Angeles Times. He later joined today's Zaman and worked there until the Turkish government shut down the newspaper in 2016. He has been writing columns for Al Arabiya since 2013 and regularly contributes to the Huffington Post. He's the first journalist in Turkey asked by Erdogan to be imprisoned. He's also the first journalist to be deported from Turkey. He's a frequent commentator on developments related to Turkey for major world TV channels including CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, and NBC. He rose to international prominence for documenting the massive crackdown on Turkish journalists and he's best known for reporting on the post-coup purge in Turkey. Hamid Bilici is a former Turkish newspaper executive and the former editor-in-chief of the newspaper Zaman. He was also the chief executive officer of its English language version today's Zaman before the recent government takeover. He was general director of Sihan news agency and editor of Accion Weekly magazine. Writing mainly on the topic of the foreign policy of Turkey and world politics, Bilici frequently shares his views at various locals and international television programs. Bilici is a member of the Turkish Journalists Association, Journalists and Writers Foundation, and World Association of Newspapers. Welcome to you both. It's great to have you here. Thank you. And joining me in the studio to conduct this Trustees Without Borders interview are two colleagues, both graduate students at Virginia Tech and members of the Community Voices team. Mario Kresh is a Ph.D. candidate in the ASPECT program. He's an instructor in the Department of Political Science and is the co-editor of the Spectra Journal. Alex Stubberfield is a second-year ASPECT student. He's an instructor in the Department of Political Science and is the editor-elect of the Spectra Journal. We have a lot of ground to cover in just an hour with our distinguished guest. And Alex, how about getting us started?
1: Mario and I have a few questions that we've prepared, but as of course it would be great if we could just keep the conversation free flowing. I know how journalists like to talk, <laughs> <laughs> and we're very interested in what you have to say. So uh, to kick things off, let's, uh, let me ask, what were some politicizing events in your past for both of you? How did you get into journalism?
2: What was the calling? Uh, well, um, well, thank you very much, Alex. I mean, it's it's great to be here. Um, I think um, when, whenever I see um, a budding or aspiring journalist, the first thing I ask him or her is that, do you have a, a, a blog? And if they say no, I'm really becoming very pessimistic because I really believe that the journalist has this instinct is to Get out uh, things out of their chest, is is to scribble down anything. It's just to to announce things. It's to make sure that the people and the public uh, are informed about that. So I think uh, aside from the fact that we're really interested um, as as a public interest, we're interested in to making sure that 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 we hold elected power accountable and make sure that the the public know things that they're supposed to know. Uh, it's also in our nature. I think it's it's character, character, characteristically we are innately born with that, with an idea that you know we are hardworking peop- people who really want to say things, who, who who really want to comment on on many things. And I think it's important that if you see anyone who speaks too much, and I think this is one of the main characteristics of being a good journalist, and also trying to get out this to a wider audience, I think it's a very important uh, pillar of being uh, a, a journalist. And I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, for my wife, for my family, I speak too much. And I think that, you know, um, why to waste, you know, my words and sentences, uh, perhaps I can do something better. Um, so I started with uh, Los Angeles Times, trying to cover elections in post-Soviet countries. And and, and then, um, you know, I, I had to do my master's after that, and, and I joined. A Turkish uh, newspaper which was an English language uh, newspaper in Turkey which was the best-selling um, English language newspaper in Turkey and uh, I worked there as a, a foreign editor as a, as a night news uh, at the night news desk um, until uh, you know the, the government came down hard on me because of uh, several things I wrote uh, several tweets I posted that offended uh, the Turkish government uh, and and then they because I spoke too much they kicked me out
3: of the country <laughs> Uh, thank you, Maher. Um, I have a, a question for both of you uh, that I would like to ask, and that is um, what does a government need to do to facilitate journalism, and how is that not the case recently in Turkey? And maybe if you, either one of you, could, was there a better time for journalism in your careers?
4: Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I. I uh, when I entered into university, I did not have any idea of being a journalist. I studied international relations and political science, and I was expecting to be a governor or an, a state official, some somebody like that. And uh, but at the end of my uh, university years, the graduate and in the undergraduate, there was uh, a friend of mine who was uh, working as a journalist in. Zaman Daily, and uh, who was happy with that, and he offered me to come and see uh, work conditions if I could like the job, etc. And I started to go uh, at the weekends while I was studying in the university. So we 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 formed with some other uh, friends a a group of uh, young students. Who are making some researches to be published in the newspaper? At that time, it is I mentioned uh, early 90s, and uh, when I graduated from the university, and I turned to be, I decided to be a journalist, and I started in 1993 as a reporter in uh, Zaman Daily, which is unfortunately now shut down. And uh, I became the editor-in-chief of that newspaper, which I started as reporter uh, after 25 years. And uh, that, that, that's it. And I, I, I worked uh, as editor and deputy editor, uh, editor, general manager of uh, Jihan News Agency, uh, etc. So this is my short story of how, how I became journalist. And in, in, in terms of... Uh, Your question, uh, of course, media freedom is a must for a functioning democracy. Uh, And uh, without that, I guess it is not possible to define any government, any regime, uh, a democracy. And uh, in Turkey, it has been always tough and difficult for journalists, because there was no no time that we had full-fledged media freedom always there was uh, problems because our democracy could be considered uh, for a long time as a quasi-democracy, not a full-fledged democracy. Although we had uh, 200 years of modernization, westernization starting from Ottoman times, and we have uh, 60 years of multi-party experience since 1950s, uh, but in, in those 60 years, we had five military interventions which which means a lot of limitations and a lot of hurdles for for media people, especially for anyone in the media criticizing uh, the government view and the the powerful people. So there has been cases that uh, journalists uh, were imprisoned and sometimes assassinated, sometimes exiled, and sometimes the building of uh, newspapers were blown up and very, very tragic things uh, indeed happened. And there was always uh, a struggle for uh, real democracy in Turkey. Indeed, uh, we I, I, I as a journalist witnessed a lot of those ups and downs for uh, the journalistic or media environment. And I, I thought uh, in 2000, in early 2000, that uh, Turkey had the chance to join European Union and to be a normal democracy. And in 2004, there was a very important decision to start uh, negotiations about the European Union. And the Erdogan government was very important reformer and very important initiator of those uh, successful democratic reforms. But 10 years later, after 2005, when we came to 2004, 12, 2013, uh, there has been a drastic change for for Erdogan government. It was no more a priority to make Turkey a member of European Union. And uh, I mean the Copenhagen criteria, or uh, freedom of media, uh, independence of judiciary, those values lost their importance and Erdogan started to turn Uh, Turkey into a one-man rule and from a a quasi-democracy, now Turkey turned into a, a, let's say, quasi-dictatorship, we could say. And, And there are every signs of that you could see. I mean, when you look at a number of academicians fired from universities, not just we talk about what's happening in media, 7,000 academicians were fired recently by by Erdogan government and 200, almost 200 journalists now in jail and over 150 media institutions were shut down, including TV stations, radio stations, and news websites. And so, uh, unfortunately, now it's very difficult to call uh, Turkey a democracy and uh, the environment is getting tougher and tougher for uh, honest uh, critical journalists
2: oh, well um with respect to your question about you know how governments can facilitate up the media and the freedom to operate i think um it's very obvious um that uh, the the governments are not going to facilitate facilitate you know anything for the for the media because uh, many many uh, governments and authorities are really obsessed with the fact that the media are out there smelling for blood, and and I think this is very true for many many uh, presidents at the White House to the Westminster to, to from the compound of Saddam Hussein to to the palace of uh, President Erdogan. This is very true that they're really obsessed with the media. But but the problem here is if we have. Um, a functioning institutions that will make sure that they do not have they do not cross the line and, and violate their um, the the freedoms, and I think uh, as as soon as uh, these institutions are buried, as as soon as uh, the society the people feel that uh, you know uh, the the role of these media is in this, is dispensable. Um, I think that starts the danger. And, and I believe it's a golden age of journalism. You know, it's very easy to be a journalist in Norway or in Denmark way. You know, the biggest news story is how a cat climbed onto the tree, tree and cannot <laughs> g- go down. But now it's perhaps the first time, at least in my life, that we have this sense of why we are doing it. Um, and I think it's uh, both true for Turkey, but as well as the United States. In the light of the recent events, I think it's important that the journalists are really feeling that um, that sense that it's very important job they are doing, speaking truth to the power, holding these elected officials accountable. Um, and, and I think it's this is the time that when the role of media becomes a uh, much more important and, and and to repeat to repeat i think this is a, a golden age of journalism
1: so just to follow up on our discussion thus far how can we identify the formation of an autocratic state? And can you point to some more specific examples in Turkey? We've already covered the crackdown on the media and academics, but are there other warning signs that might be beneficial?
2: Right. Well, it's it's very uh, difficult to measure and label and frame uh, governments and, and what kind of... Uh, areas they fail in terms of uh, measuring to what degree democracy they are, to what degree in in, if they are in the area of, uh, um, you know, authoritarian governments. There are a lot of gray zones, too. So we don't really know if the United States is a full fledged democracy, since we have an elected leader um, and but he is um, doing a lot of. uh, things that might be construed as violation of laws, uh, if he's um, characterization of the media as the end of the people or trying to put pressure on judges through Twitter, if you can construe this as a um, interference in judiciary. So. We don't know, so it's very difficult to really frame regimes and, um, and 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 scholars are really scratching their heads to understand what type of country Turkey is at the moment. You know, many people say that, you know, populist politics is good for democracy because uh, it reinvigorates a lot of people who, who fell behind who are, uh, and, and make sure that millions of people uh, start participating in the pol- political process. But others are saying that, you know, yes, maybe a populist politics as we have seen in turkey and in the united states it's it's very good in uh, revitalizing all these you know people who have otherwise not spoken for many years but uh but since the rule of people replaces the rule of law uh, mindset in this country it also buries checks and balances and also hurts uh, uh institutions that are really important actual vital essential to 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 preserve and sustain democracy, so in Turkey I think it's very important um, to see the media freedom and uh, and how the escalation of crackdown on the media is also very synonymous to how Turkey um, backslide, uh, going into backslide regarding democracy too. So it's a kind of a barometer of democracy too. Um, I, I don't I don't imagine that you know any country could have really um, huge violations of media freedoms and at the same time remain democracy but you may have um, you know very um, free media but still a lot of problems in democracy and we can see in South Korea in India where you have very vibrant and free media but there are a lot of problems regarding uh, democratic consolidation so in Turkey um, it's, it's a very tricky case, we don't have now countries that are, you know, with tanks going to uh, protests and killing people. It's a new fashion of autocracy in which leaders, including in democratic countries, are manipulating one part of the society and discredi- discrediting the media, putting pressure on judiciary without violating laws and transforming the country and, uh, and, and getting their legitimacy from the people of the power. Um, so I think this is um, a, a kind of a, a fine line that these leaders are, are walking. So there's no one, one type of, you know, answer to this question. It's really very, very difficult to measure the degree of democracy and autocracy. It's very difficult to frame countries as democracy or, or authoritarian countries. It's safe to say that, you know, it would be, you know, absolutely false to call Turkey as a democracy because what we have is only an elected, uh, electoral democracy. And um a turn of majority, basically uh, but um it's it's very a uh, Turkey's case I think is new and needs to be studied academically uh, because there are a lot of people experts there who are still calling Turkey a democracy because uh, we have a leader who won election after election and and perhaps the most uh successful politician in modern times so it's it's a very challenge
4: I think uh, I mean. As important as media freedom is the independence of judiciary. I mean, uh, when I look at the case and what's happening in Turkey, everything now happening as crackdown on media or firing academicians or other uh, civil servants from important positions, that happens through control of the government on judiciary. So, for instance, uh, if a media is shut down, a television channel is shut down, there is a court decision. It is not, I mean, by the police sent by uh, Erdoğan, the leader of uh, or president of Turkey. So the control of judiciary by political parties or politicization of judiciary is so critical. I mean, when when I uh, look at how it is uh, interrelated, There was a very important case that there was a decision uh, to arrest and jail a journalist who was uh, head of a TV channel. And uh, the accusation against that journalist was a TV serial. There was a uh, talk on that uh, TV serial and a government-controlled judge decided to jail him. And this case brought to another judge and the other judge decided his release. And what happened? This judge who decided to release was fired by the government-controlled judiciary. And then this did not stop there and they jailed the judge. Now the both journalists and judge who decided about his release are in jail for 2 years so can you imagine the how critique the situation of judiciary is and this is i mean now there are for instance business people whose assets are confiscated by such court decisions so when you look at from the outside everything seems legal and there is a court decision and uh, things are happening Seemingly in a legal manner, but if you don't have uh, independence of judiciary, I mean, there's high risk that you will lose everything. I mean, when I talk, when I think about uh, the the case in America, because there is also a concern here, a pessimism here about the di- direction of democracy, I think the crucial thing is to preserve independence of judiciary. If Americans, if American system loses that, then... With that step, the populist leader by using judiciary will harm uh, any other institutions of uh, democracy like like media, freedom of expression.
3: Yeah, I think this is a, a fascinating perspective that you opened up. I had a question in mind that asked, looking at both of you, how you are in a way exiles or in a diaspora commenting on turkey and still influencing the discourse in turkey and this happens worldwide right so on the one hand we see that there is increasingly for many countries this role of journalists from outside influencing the politics or at least the public discourse in their country from far away at the same time your perspective would sort of make us a bit more pessimistic right because we can't outsource a judiciary of a country there is still a connection, a relationship between journalism in a diaspora from from the outside, and how countries function internally, which is very difficult uh, to influence. If you just look at how how maybe the the mood or the reception of German politics, for example, are in Turkey, right, which is arguably very bad. Um, how do you how do you see the two at work? And maybe let me ask both of you.
2: Yeah. Um, well, um, well, it it is uh, not easy um, to try to influence um, events on the ground, and I think there's a limit to what we can do at this point, because um, this is not Iran or Russia or China where um, you could be exiled or in diaspora and trying to, um, you know channel some of your thoughts and some of your analysis inside the country and make sure that the people are not do not remain uninformed there Um, we're talking about the country Turkey which has a very popular leader and manipulating a lot of um, his uh, support base so it's very difficult even if you can reach out those people uh, to make sure that whatever you say is being uh, well received or at least received there you know, whenever I post something on Twitter or on Facebook or whenever I try to, you know, reach out to people, there are a lot of, uh, perhaps hundreds of people who who are ready um, to just, you know, uh, use all these profane words. And, and, and there's a mobbing culture that's very prevalent among the supporters of President Erdogan. And it's very difficult, you know, even if you can reach out to the people there and, and change realities on the ground. So, I'm not sure um, how it's even important at this point to make sure that you reach out to the people there. And uh, we are just, you know, ordinary journalists and, uh, and and we are dealing with a very, very powerful uh, country uh, using every type of state resources to make sure that the criti- critics at home and abroad are silenced. And uh, they shut down our newspaper, they, you know, uh, imprisoned our colleagues, we're the lucky ones who could go out and um, and, and we have a social media accounts that, that Twitter um, is being complicit with the Turkish government, you know, t- trying to withheld the content uh, that we are um, sending to Turkey. So when, if you are in Turkey, you cannot access to tweets. Um, they verify as as journalists and then block um, by uh, the, the codes that are t- tightly controlled by the government. And, and that's only the window of, of, of communication that w- that we have with uh, our Turkish audience. And it's being taken away from us too. So it's really a very daunting task at, at this point to influence uh, events and shape events there. Um, we don't have TV channels, which I think is a very, very important in shaping public opinion in any given country. And I have this theory that, you know, as long as you control TV networks in any country, you actually control the country. And it's very important that people will glue to their uh, you know, TV channels in prime time and, and watch, you know, five or ten folks. And these are the people who will shape the public opinion. I mean, in this country, we have basically, you know, Sean Hannity uh, now deciding, you know, what will happen and, and, and what should happen. Uh, and we have a president who is watching that.
3: May I interject real quick, what are, and you don't have to bring, bring out names, but what are, what is the pundit culture in Turkey like? Because I think it's a very important aspect of American politics, how sort of pundits create their own little world and followers are just... Absorbed in that, basically become right blind to whatever else is going on. Right.
2: I mean, our our people really love conspiracy theories and it's very easy to explain many of the complicated issues. And um, and you know, as experts, as academics, as journalists, columnists, you could go on TV and you know try to uh, simplify things as much as possible so that you know every Joe could understand. But the problem. With those, uh, you know, overly partisan and and some of some of whom are absolutely ignorant, the people are trying to shape events, mm-hmm. a dystopian events, as if you know there is a conspiracy going on, um, without any evidence, without backing up what they are saying, and it resonates absolutely well among many non-college educated Turks. There are a lot of people in rural areas, which constitute the backbone of President Erdogan's support base. And whenever they see a man or woman on TV channel making, you know, absolutely outrageous, you know, accusations or statements or remarks, they buy all this stuff because it, um, it, it, they tap into the sentiments of many Turkish people, some of whom have uh, anti-Western statements. The people are really hungry for information that flatters their prejudices, right? So whenever you have here a news story, which was fake about the Pizzagate, that uh, they, they um, a, a claim that you know, C- Clintons are frequenting a pizza uh, shop in Washington, DC, w- a, a, and, and in the basement there's a pedophilia going on there. Um, so, I mean, th- this is absolutely, I mean, outrageous. I mean, if, even if I don't support Clinton, I mean, I would not buy this story as a college educated person, right? But because it flatters the prejudices of many, many uh, people, uh, people buy this. And, and that's how fake news um, spread all around the world. Uh, and, and it goes viral on Facebook especially, and on Twitter, where you, you don't verify many things that are being said. So, so in this sense, we do have a lot of loyalist, I'm sorry, loyalist uh, experts, so-called experts, who are basically parroting the line coming from the so-called palace of Erdogan. And there are a lot of people who are ready to buy this. There's no one who can challenge them. There's no way that we can appear on these talk shows and challenge them. Uh, They're just uh, having this monologue with the Turkish people. And I think they are playing a very crucial role in brainwashing millions of people.
4: I think in terms of our reach to uh, Turkish society, it's very limited. You know, 90% of media today, controlled by Erdoğan regime, so they repeat all of the same propaganda with the headlines, with the TV, broadcasting, everything. And the remaining 10% is under always a threat of prisoning, exiling, whatever. Now there is, for instance, a leftist newspaper in that 10% remaining part of free media, ...the editor-in-chief of which is in jail, together with 10 other colleagues... ...and together with an important cartoonist, the most important cartoonist in Turkey. So this is the 10% that we have. So it's very difficult uh, to reach to mainstream uh, media because they are under threat. Yes, there are, I mean, when you look at it, there are lots of television stations, lots of radios still functioning... ...but in terms of substance... They are not doing journalism, they are just mouthpiece of government. If they don't, I mean, the owners are threatened with tax inspections, or confiscating, seizing their assets, and with all the uh, brutal uh, tactics. So this is, this is the environment. So what lefts, you go outside of country, which many journalists left now, some of them are in European capital, some of them are in America, and they are uh, establishing websites to reach to Turkish society. And what happens? The next day, they shut down the websites. And only with those people with VPN could reach do- to those new sites. And it's very limited, maybe 10% or 5% of society. And uh, the social media, for instance, uh, my, I have uh, more than 200,000 followers on my Twitter account, which is verified, but now limited, locked in Turkey. Turkish people cannot see if they don't use uh, VPN uh, kind of uh, things. And my Facebook account, I had a Facebook account when I was the editor-in-chief of the newspaper, but when they shut down the newspaper, they also closed down my Facebook account. So this, this is the situation that you are trying to reach your society. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that you have no chance, but very limited. And one, one aspect is very important in terms of uh, the populist leaders doing in, in, in their uh, tactics in society. Uh, for me, I, I understand now better that for a populist leader, society is not 100% of the people living in a country, not all citizens of a country society for them the real society is the support base the constituency of them so their focus is to to get away to continuation of that support from that constituency so they used the polarization tactic by all means to divide society and to to uh, create sometimes artificial tensions to continue that polarization. So this is a very important trap. So if you are in this camp of, uh, for instance, pro-government side, you are mouthpiece of uh, the propaganda government. If you are in the opposite side, you are enemy. Now the government, the ruling party's line for those who don't agree with the government line are either enemy or traitor, or terrorists. So this this way, by this way, you discredit any other voice, any other independent or alternative voices in, in, a, in a society. So very, very detrimental f- for functioning in, in,
1: in a democratic fashion. So to follow up with this discussion, what were the conditions that allowed for the transformations in Turkey and how Can you explain Erdogan's appeal in the sense of he went from this sort of elected official, he was mayor of Istanbul in the the late 90s, and now he's president of Turkey. And he's, as you've said, Mahir, he's been able to hold power for so long. What has been so appealing about him that would allow him to consolidate his power base like this. I
4: think uh, there are very important mistakes by the former establishment against him that made him hero in the eyes of many people. You know, this person, when he was the mayor of Istanbul, was prisoned for four months. And when he founded the party, there has been lots of threats against him by the establishment, by the military and by the judiciary. And there was, uh, in 2007, an attempt and several attempts by the military to make coups against against his uh, government. And in 2008, there was a case by the ju- judiciary to close down his party. And these people are religious people. And, for instance, their wives wear headscarf. But the judiciary, the secular establishment judiciary, banned uh, girls with headscarf to attend to universities so those kind of uh, mistakes of the former regime or the uh, secular establishment created a very big uh, psychology of victimhood and an important support base for him in the conservative parts of society so this that is very important element and other than that of course he uh, did i mean this is not uh, a leader or a party or a government that started doing mistakes from day one in contrast they did very successful things lots of economic achievements lots of democratic reforms as i mentioned they they were they were doing a lot of reforms to make turkey a member of european union and turkey's foreign policy was i mean like a shining star until 2000 2000- Uh, maybe 11, 2012. So with those uh, achievements, he got a lot of uh, credit from people. This is is very important that we should underline. So after a while, he changed his uh, priorities and he turned a kind of democratic democratization into a kind of one-man rule. But uh, we should accept that he achieved some successes until that time. And now, and when I look at the case, I see that uh, a leader using the ideology of nationalism, I mean, he referred a lot of times, and the con- con- his controlled media is doing a lot of uh, good service to highlight that the Turkey is going back to glorious days of Ottoman Empire. Every day this is, I mean, uh, an important uh, topic in in Turkish media and in the uh, speeches of of Erdoğan, which is broadcasted live every day, almost every day, by at least 30 TV channels live. So this is the propaganda. And the the third important thing is the use of religion. So uh, some uh, conservative uh, people, as I said, were uh, disfranchised before. Persecuted by the old secular establishment, so now they they feel that if Erdogan goes and the the opposition comes, they will go back to old days, old days of repression. So this is also an important element, and of course one important thing that why people support uh, uh, Erdogan is uh, the system that uh, he established to subsidize people. I mean, between 15 to 20 million Turkish people are subsidized by, uh, by any means. Some of them are paid directly, some of them are given some donations, some of them are distributed coals in the winter, some of them are given uh, gift as a gift pasta or rice. So those kind of system is a kind of creating a clientelist uh, environment that you buy, um, I mean, uh, support by distributing some uh, benefits to to society. So, these kind of uh, factors are, I guess, important still to understand why the support uh, to Erdoğan continues.
2: Just to add to these um, great points, I think it's important to also highlight that you know, uh, there are, there's a mindset among the electorate of President Erdogan is that he's invincible. That no matter what he does, he doesn't fall. I mean, this uh, guy won election after election, never lost elections. His popularity never goes down. Under him, you know, no matter what happens outside, you know, financial meltdown or economic crisis in Greece, in Europe, in the United States, they bypassed Turkey, and they have bypassed Turkey. And now we ha- we- our economy is, is going south at the moment. It's sagging the local currency is plunging but the people have this belief that this guy is a saver this guy saved us we had Ten governments between 1990 to 2001, in 11 years, we had two devastating economic crises. We had a very devastating earthquake that shattered entire Istanbul in 1999. And we had, we had a lot of um, political turmoil at this point. Uh, when President Erdogan came, he was prime minister, prime minister back then. I mean, he lifted millions of people out of poverty and, and he fixed the, the country. Um, yes, maybe in like seven or eight years, he made sweeping reforms in line with the European standards. And he limited the role of military in politics. He, he reformed many state institutions. But whenever, it, whenever he eliminated the powers that, 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 that was hurdle, that was checking his actual absolute power, he, he then turned back from uh democracy and and started to uh you know uh, crack down on dissidents and transform the country but it's it's important to also you know look at his electorate and 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 look at them in a way that they really believe that this guy will never fall and no matter what kind of tragedy will plot turkey um erdogan will save them you know Look at what happened last summer. The military coup happened, um, and then we had, you know, uh, several military interventions in the past, in 2007, in 2003. um, Most of them were through, like, statements uh, on the website or or just statements, um, (coughs) verbal statements. But still, uh, he survived this. And and, and people really consider him as a a saver.
4: I think uh, there are other uh, points that now I remember very important the weakness of opposition is an important uh, chance for Erdoğan to continue his uh, power and his success. And uh, this is, this is uh, very important. And the second thing is, uh, as I said, the victimhood psychology is very key for, uh, for uh, his uh, continuation of uh, power and uh, one more aspect is you know with with the too much control over media all day 24 hours you are giving a perspective of conspiracy theories to the people you are poisoning people so uh, now i see uh, people's minds poisoned with that kind of approach so it's not important uh, not possible now to talk in a rational manner with people for instance, now economy is going back and there are lots of uh, problems with the tourism, with the foreign policy, uh, with uh, judiciary, etc. But when you raise those issues, the conspiracy uh, theory poisoned mindset says that they 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 had a ready explanation. They said that we are getting powerful and the international enemies of Turkey are in an envy uh, against us, and they are creating problems. So there is no problem that is coming from the mistakes of Erdoğan government. No more, they are not responsible. So someone outside Turkey, uh, the Westerners, sometimes Americans, sometimes uh, Russians, whatever. So there is not, I mean, it's not possible to uh, make uh, Erdoğan or his government for any, accountable for anything. So uh, there, there are lots of explanation for everything in a conspiracy-minded uh, environment.
3: Yeah, I think this can't be overstated, the importance of that.
4: Um, we here have
3: conspiracies that even if you have Trump in office, there are still pundits that will say, well, now the enemy is this and that. Right? We have George Soros, the international Napoleon of socialism, that now is sort of being conjured up as this new enemy figure. So maybe one thing that I get from our discussion is that you need to be to be an appealing leader, you need to have a de facto weak opposition, but a strong projection of an opposition. Um, How does Erdogan maintain this? How does his regimes, maybe his followers, because they're part of this, right? If you believe in a conspiracy theory, the nice thing about it is that you can be part of the narrative, too, right? You can be right. You can have facts, too, and you can contribute to that. How does that work in the Turkish context?
2: Well, well I mean, what you said is, a, is a, a textbook definition of populism is that the uh, hostility toward and the suspicion of the establishment, special interest groups, corporations, and the mainstream media. And you believe that there's an intricate relationship between these groups and minorities in the country, trying to take away power from the people who are the rightful owners of this country. Um, and I think it's very true from Brexit to um, to the Netherlands, to, to Turkey, to the Philippines, India, uh, South Africa, and Brazil. Um, and it's important to also highlight that um, w- the populist leaders are creating constructing imaginary enemies all the time and 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 presenting this themselves as uh, as as those people who are fighting against them and presenting people that they are fighters and it doesn't matter if it exists or not and president erdogan has been talking about interest lobby uh, talking about how these you know dark circles uh, with global evil links have been targeting Turkey for a long time, and, and these people have been fighting with them. Uh, and President Erdogan also you know, presented the media and other forces in, in, um, in the country, which is unique for Turkey, like very hostile judiciary and very intrusive military, as forces to be reckoned with. And I think it's also important to underscore the fact that the populist leaders have this mob culture that um, the rule of law, they don't care about the rule of law. They don't care about rules and regulations. They do not respect them because eventually they believe that they are ultimately rigged against them. The system is rigged against them. So they don't, whenever they violate those rules, they don't lose popularity because, you know, their supporters never believed that those rules were, were installed there for a reason. But those rules were, um, were, were installed to favor the establishment and group of people who will benefit from this. And it's very true for Turkey too. Um, and, um, and and also I think it's essential to um, to, to make sure to understand that um, in countries like Turkey where you have um, leaders with uh, white uh, electors who are basically a very knee-jerk supporters, they are a very loyal uh, they never go away, no matter what wrongs uh, their leaders commit, uh, and uh, and it's uh, really important that uh, in these type of administrations, promotion is um, you know the more close. The people who are close to the leader, they're they're they getting closer not because of the competence, but because they are more loyal. So the from the media to judges to prosecutors to journalists to academics are really rivaling to show themselves as loyal to the leader because that's a a ticket to to, to get promoted or to be closer to the administration or, or or it's it's a it's a gateway to be bestowed with more carrots. And many, many uh, politicians who do not subscribe to these ideas really want to uh, stand by and support support these populist leaders because they know that this is a, a door to success. And I think it's very true about here in the United States too. You remember when uh, Trump made these um, uh, remarks about this, uh, the forceful um, sexual advance of women? Uh, that was the that w- that point when the poll Ryan said that he will no more campaign for pres- uh, candidate Trump, right? On that single day, his popularity rating dropped 28%. So it's like in, in one night, 45% of Republicans did not support once unassailable Paul Ryan. And and then since then, um, and I know there are a lot of policy items that he, he does not support. There are a lot of policy items that the many Republican members of the Congress and senators do not support. But they have to make sure that, you know, they... Um, you know uh they are shown as, as supporting uh white house is because there are angry voters back in their districts who will not elect them the next uh in, in the next election cycle so it's it's very true for turkey it's, it has been very true for turkey too in countries like turkey where leaders are very strong both in the party but also in in the country it's really very hard for leaders to emerge and for these, you know, uh, budding leaders to come out and speak out, because because we had really very charismatic leaders in the past two years. One of them was presidential rival called Salatin Demirtas. Where is he now? In jail. We have another woman, Meryl Akşener. He, she, um, you know, fared uh, much better in every single poll, and the government has done whatever it takes to make sure to, to bury her candidacy. And, and, and saw her as a threat. And also within the party, there have been a lot of uh, politicians within the Turkish ruling party who really wanted to challenge the establishment and emerge as alternative leaders. Most of them were buried. Most of them were eliminated. Uh, there are a lot of ministers who slightly challenged the president. They were all, all eliminated. So it's very difficult to rise up as a leader in countries where you have a very dominant, very powerful figure as a st- as head of state.
1: We've talked about the dynamics of populism, especially the nationalist component, as well as constructing enemies both internal and external to the country. As part of Erdogan's popularity, he's playing this strongman role. I'm wondering how geopolitical actors such as Islamic State and the Kurds have influenced Turkey's politics in the past five years or contributed to Erdogan's popularity. And Hamid, or... Mahir, you can please yeah, jump
4: uh, in. Uh, as I uh, tried to explain, uh, until 2011, 2012, there has been a very successful foreign policy by the uh, Erdogan government. And they were giving almost equal priority to its relations with the East and with the West at the same time. So Turkey was trying to be member of European Union, having good relations with America, and at the same time with good relations with the Muslim world. And when there was, in 2008, an important uh, decision in secu- in United Nations, when Turkey applied for being member of Security Council, 151 countries supported Turkey. Mm. So it was such a bright uh, success. So Turkey was a kind of shining star, both in the East and in the West. So this was, I, I call, golden times of Turkish foreign policy. And um, this success, unfortunately, poisoned, in some way, uh, the Erdoğan and uh, his surroundings. And he, this success led them into overconfidence that uh, they could uh, establish or revive Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, they could design Middle East, they could bring peace to uh, Israel and Palestine, and there, there is a statement by foreign minister then, then foreign minister Davutoğlu, who said that we are responsible for designing uh, Middle East. So and this was just uh, in the in in the dates that was uh, the emergence of Arab Spring. And uh, in in Arab Spring uh, it was it led. Uh, and it increased that all confidence because in in the areas starting from Tunisia to uh, Syria the Islamic oriented uh, political parties were winning or it sounds that they will get the say, final say if elections are uh, held in those countries so all of a sudden uh, Erdoğan and the AK party, his party uh, started to think that there is a chance to be to establish a kind of leadership over Middle East because uh, those political parties are very closely associated with his ideology in Turkey so that uh, was in, in my view a, a very important overconfidence, but the biggest mistake was uh, Turkey's uh, I, I, before that that period Turkey was very popular in the Middle East with the soft power elements, like Turkish cereals, Turkish tourism, intercultural relations, university uh, students' exchanges, etc. Those kind of things w- was uh, very important and helping to Turkish democracy and helping uh, mutually to Middle East as well. But after Arab Spring, Turkey started to use uh, hard power uh, factors to influence the ch- changes and to design or to redesign Middle East like intervening in Syria. Turkey, Turkey thought that it could get rid of Assad regime and establish a pro-Turkey uh, government in, in Damascus. So, but this was beyond Turkey's potential. So I say that this was very much overconfidence. So Turkey, uh, Turkey did not have that power, but uh, the leaders of the country were feeling as if they had that uh, power because of the previous successes. So uh, success is sometimes poisoning, and this is very uh, open illustration of of that that fact in my view.
3: On that same note, do you think that that project that Erdogan had to pacify Syria but to get rid of Assad? is something that puts them at odd with the current Putin regime in, in Russia?
4: It created all tensions. Now, you know, uh, Turkey in this golden times had a policy of uh, good neighborly relations, zero problems policy with neighbors. And it was successful when Turkey was modest, when Turkey was trying to transform itself democratically, economically, and having good relations with the whole world at the same time, it was a successful uh, concept and it was a successful policy. But with the overconfidence, when Turkey started to feel that uh, it is enough powerful, I mean, as if uh, the Ottoman times uh, came back, they could rule Middle East, etc. That kind of mentality, uh, unfortunately, destroyed the priority of Turkish government uh, in terms of EU orientation which was an important drawback for democratic reforms and economic uh, successes. And uh, then, t- did Turkey got uh, support in the Middle East with that change of orientation from Europe to Middle East? No. Started when Arab Spring failed, Turkey destroyed all relations with the countries in, in the region, and with Israel, with Egypt, with Syria. So, uh, so we came uh, from a point where Turkey was highlighted and admired and inspired by those people and by the regimes of uh, Middle East. But in, in, in that change of orientation, unfortunately, Turkey lost the appeal. For instance, Egyptians were thinking Turkey that as an important model, that a Muslim country reforming itself and being respected uh, by Americans, by the Western powers. So this was an important uh, source of inspiration. But with this uh, dimension or with this orientation failed, so Turkey lost, uh, I mean, importance. Turkey lost the, the values that makes it different from other Middle Eastern authoritarian countries. Now Turkey is getting similar every day to countries of Middle East. And, and there is no, no, not much difference.
2: Well, well, I think um, I, I'm personal. I'm a state centric um, political neo realist, um, and I believe that um, no matter what type of regimes uh, countries have um they will uh, remain fixed in their foreign policies that you know self-interest you know will will seek hegemony and considering that you know turkish people are are imp- imperialistic people you know as a nature as a characteristically imperialistic they will always seek a uh, an opportunity to make sure to dominate over neighbors and th- that has been true for for centuries and the reason why it was not the case during the Republican era in the past, like ninety years, is because we had a very introvert military, a uh, Kemalist secular military that really uh, was taught by uh, our founder Atatürk that you know um you have to establish peace in the country and you should not uh, cross border into into other countries, and as we had um, a military coup attempt last summer. And, and most of the military was excised, and most of these, you know, Kemalist secular generals were put in prison and purged. Now we see a military who is in Syria. Now we see a very erratic um, a president who is threatening Europe, threatening Syria, th- th- threatening Iraq. Look, I mean, we shot down... A Turkish warplane which which the last time happened in like 1952 because there is a unwritten rule of engagement between uh, during the Cold War between the Soviet Union and and, and it's um, Vassal States and the United States and, and NATO members um, This is something that Turkey is unaware of. This is something that Turkey do not does not respect and and Turkey is also is ruled by people who are really very romantic about the, the glor- glorified Ottoman Empire. They really believe that you know once they ruled uh, you know, a uh, vast you know, swath of territory in the Middle East, they could do the same. But they ignore the fact that there's a very powerful force called nationalism that did not exist in past centuries. But it's very true uh, today that there's no way, no matter how good you could have ruled those lands for centuries, uh, there's no way that you can do the same today. Um, Iraq would be fine for some time for the United States to invade their country, but they would absolutely not fine for Turkey to go and, and try to establish law and order in that country. It's, it, and, and Turkish government doesn't really understand this fact. They don't They don't really see the fact that there's a history between those countries. And whenever they really try to impose they serve power on those countries. And as you mentioned, that once, you know, then Foreign Minister Davutoglu said that we are redesigning, refashioning the Middle East. And once he said that no bird could fly without our, our permission in the Middle East, um, and, and, and I think the next month, four to six of our diplomats were kidnapped by ISIS. In so, Mosul. Yeah, yeah in, in Mosul. So, um, as I said, as a neorealist who really believes that, you know, it doesn't matter what, what, what type of color... Uh, regime you have in the country, your foreign policy remains the same, but but Turkey is a, is a such an extreme case that. You know, the domestic politics dictates a lot on the foreign policy. Look, we are at the moment at each other's throat with Europe just because we have a referendum coming up. President Erdogan blasting Germany, Austria, the Netherlands, the Western countries just because, you know, to whip up these national sentiments in the country. And also, we are absolutely, that's true, we are bombing Kurdish towns and districts just because, um, you know, we have have several elections.
3: Uh, Yeah, can I follow up on the referendum? Mm -hmm. Um, What is it about? And it seems more important than you would think in the context of the last couple of months that we have seen. Why does Erdogan care so much about it? Why these political proxies in Europe and Netherlands, why is it so important for him that they speak to the Turkish people in those countries? What's at stake there?
2: Right. Uh, Well, uh, a referendum that that will be in less than a month is a, very, is a crucial moment for, for Erdogan's fate. I mean, this is the moment he waited for years. Um, there, in the referendum, um, he will be bestowed with um, sweeping powers. It will bury checks and balances. It will um, uh, diminish the role of parliament. It will put uh, uh, judiciary under tight control of the government. Um, the, the, the president will be granted with uh, sweeping powers such as declaring state of emergency or dissolving parliament um, he, and the, the role of the, the prime minister, actually the prime minister position will be abolished. So it, it's kind of a creating a, sta- a presidential system, uh, which is not really um, uh, similar to what we have here in the United States. Uh, ha- we have really have a very powerful White House, but it's really um, constrained by a lot of institutional mechanisms um, in addition to vibrant civil society, very powerful media, and we have a free and fair elections. This is something that's absent in Turkey. And it's in- very important that uh, the President Erdogan secures votes uh, in April referendum because that's the moment that he, he waited for many, many years. And um, because uh, he's facing a a very uphill battle on April 16 referendum, and most polls show that the no and yes campaign are neck to neck. Um, So they really need to secure every type of vote that they can get. And there are, uh, I believe, um, nearly 3 million votes and and 1.5 million votes are in Germany. in all across Europe that they can secure. Uh, most of these people are really uh supporters of President Erdogan, especially those in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Denmark. And, and they really want to make sure that, you know, everybody's votes count. And as they confronted with European countries, they now, um, you know, um, you know, so that, you know, as these European countries restrict uh, speeches by Turkish ministers in, in those countries, Uh, This gives boost to the uh, sluggish yes campaign in the country. And and they realize that, you know, we have to, you know, keep continuing. But I'm not sure if they can, you know, uh, pick up the pieces after the referendum. I'm not sure if we can continue working with Germany in readmission deal, a migrant deal. And Erdogan himself, I think like two days ago, he declared that, you know, all these deals and with the membership negotiations with the European Union are all over. Uh, I'm not sure if he can anymore. President Erdogan can sit down with uh, Angela Merkel, who was perhaps the only European politician who had good uh, terms and 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 relationship with with Turkish president. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if he can uh, you know get together Turkish foreign policy after destroying so much in relations with the European Union, and I'm not sure if. He can also get together, you know, Turkey's, you know, reassert Turkey's power with, with respect to Russia because we killed their ambassador. We shut down their plane. These are the events that happen once in a century, right? And it's very important that Turkey, it's very important to see that Turkey is becoming a vassal state of Russia. We'll just do whatever Russia wants. Jumping on the Russian bandwagon does not feel threat from Russia as a, as a NATO member country. And and as Turkey is projecting power in northern Syria, you know, targeting a Kurdish group group called YPG, while. The Russia is, you know, aligning with the Syrian Kurds, while the United States is partnering with the Syrian Kurds in fight um, against ISIS. So these are all shifting geopolitics, and I don't know how Turkey is able to navigate all these alliances and, and, and shifting, uh, you know, geopolitical uh, alliances there. It's very challenging, and I think the Turkish government is now so focused in, on making sure that they get the yes out of the April 16 referendum, they are just ready to obliterate, you know, whatever respect we had in the world.
4: Uh, I guess there is an important explanation in addition to those uh, why Turkey is confront- in confrontation with Germany, Netherlands or whatever uh, European countries. You know, the, uh, Turkey has been part of European system for 200 years, maybe more than that. And uh, it means, um, being part of NATO, being part of European Council or European Union, requires Turkey certain standards of democracy, rule of law, media freedoms that we were all talking. I think uh, Erdoğan can no more continue being part of this European, democratic, Western structure. So he likes to find a way to go away and put the burden on the on the uh, Merkel side that they they are uh, they don't like us, they deny us membership, etc. Although he has no desire, because you cannot jail two hundred journalists and expect to be respected in European capitals or in Western capitals. So uh, I don't know what is his grand strategy. Is but when I look at his close relations with Putin with Russia. And he was always underlining that i like to join, instead of European Union, to Shanghai Platform Organization, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which brings together China and Russia, where there is no uh, criteria of democracy. So I think uh, he tries to get uh, a kind of victimhood and to energize internal domestic uh, politics with this confrontation. Uh, But at the same time, he has some plans maybe to leave uh, Western bloc and to get rid of uh, questioning uh, by democratic standards and to go into another bloc that would be safe to establish a one-man rule and getting rid of uh, any standards of democracy. That's my fear. I hope it doesn't happen, of course.
1: So does Erdogan still speak for the governed, or have the dynamics of political representation changed in Turkey to the point that he may not even have a chance of getting his referendum?
4: I think uh, Erdoğan has other uh, goals. For instance, one of the goals is to be the second biggest leader in the history of republic after Atatürk. He likes to be the second father of Turks. So this is uh, very important. Uh, he underlines that uh, very often. and uh, But uh, there is also another limitation for him, for his thirst, that much uh, for power. You know, there has been two big allegations against him about corruption, related to his ministers, his family members, and there has been lots of illegal things, lots of persecution against Kurds, against journalists, against Alavis, against many parts of Turkish society. So, normalization of Turkey would mean very bad things for Erdogan. So, Turkey should never normalize in order for him to survive. Mm. So, if Turkey turns into a normal uh, democratic uh, standards, people will start to question corruption that why 5,000 judges are persecuted? Why that number of journalists are jailed? Why those institutions of media shut down? So I think Erdoğan lost uh, the chance to accept normalization of democracy in Turkey. So we are beyond that threshold. That, that was the case in, in Syria. You know, as, as, a, as a columnist who was following the Syrian crisis very closely, I saw that, uh, I mean, uh, the ontological uh, problem of Turkey's or Western states' approach to Assad. You know, they were asking Assad to reform, to make democratizations. But it means end of Assad regime, because he was representing a minority, and he had lots of brutal things in, in his country done by their uh, government. So, asking uh, reform and democratization for that uh, person, that personality, indeed means get uh, rid of yourself. (laughs) Now we are coming to a similar situation uh, in in Turkey, which is is very bad. So it uh, needs to continue the crackdown, needs to control our uh, judiciary, ...needs to control uh, his party. You know, uh, indeed, according to our current constitution, uh, he cannot... ...he he should be independent and he should not interfere into internal politics of his own party. But the critical decision in this referendum is he will get the right to be the chairman of party. That's very important. He doesn't like to leave uh, the party... Even he decides who will rule, who will be the prime minister, who will be the next chairman of the party. He decides already, despite the fact that it's against constitution. But he likes to formalize that, and he likes to decide who will be running from uh, Ankara for the next elections as MP, and he will do that. Well,
2: uh, Erdogan came to power as a champion of the underdog, and um, and the question if he still is um, a leader of the people who voted for him. Uh, I believe the, 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 the answer to this question is yes, but um, the many people who vote for authoritarian, country, auto- authoritarian leaders uh, do not really, um, you know, um, unconditionally support these leaders as good men and women. Um, I, I don't think if the, if there there was any uh, female dictator in in history, but um, these uh, and it's very true for President Trump here too. There are a lot of nice people who voted for president Trump uh, no matter what kind of personality he has and whenever you quiz them why you voted for for this president, um, the acceptable, uh, the uh, co- acceptable be- behavior of pres- presidential conduct has changed over the time. Now uh, the, th- the the bar is so low that you know it doesn't matter whatever they say, whatever disqualifying you know factors there are, people still vote these leaders because they they believe that they can fix it, they can get things done, and and I think it's it's very important to see that those people who who, who feel left behind. Are looking for strong men and women um, those people who are tough and and will you know uh, bring about the change that that they sought for many many years but they couldn't raise their voice to an extent that the mainstream media will hear that the the establishment will hear or um or the dysfunctional administration or the government will 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 hear so that's why they resort to those you know uh strong men um to to make sure that their will is represented and their voices are heard and it's very true for turkey too and um so when we talk about how you know um quote-unquote, bad, you know, Turkish president could be in personality, what, what kind of authoritarian, you know, um, uh, proclivities he may have. It doesn't matter for many of his supporters, you know, as long as they may, they can make the ends meet because the fall of Erdogan uh, is synonymous to economic instability, political turmoil, and, and the, these, um, you know, turbulent 1990s that uh, characterize the Turkish politics as, um, as as a country where the people, you know, are, are starving and, and we don't have any assertive foreign policy, but that's not true for Erdogan. Many, many people in Turkey look at Erdogan as someone who could stood up against the European countries, to, to against the United States, and, and who actually, you know, uh, reformed the country um, in a fashion that many, many people... Uh, including those women who, who who wear headscuff, could not study at colleges. Let's say I think like five or six years ago. Until five or six years ago, um, and, and there are a lot of people uh, who have these, you know, hurt and bad feelings, you know, uh, you know, residue from that period. So 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 whenever they think those times, it's um, it's it's really appealing. Whatever Erdogan says and and does is very appealing. In also populist governments, uh, you know Erdogan was uh, mayor of Istanbul, so he exactly knows how to you know pick up trash from streets, how to fix the infrastructure pro- problem, and that resonates really well among many many rural uh, voters. And, uh, and, uh, and granted, Erdogan's government and many municipalities that, that his, con- his ruling party controlled did an absolutely fabulous job in uh, fixing those infrastructural problems. Uh, they, you know, uh, improved roads and bridges, and, and people really uh, give a lot of credit uh, to them. But as journalists, of course, um, you know, whenever there's a, a construction job, it also means that there are a lot of illicit funds going to many places because you at the end of the day, you deal with um, 30, 40 uh, different companies. And it's very easy to make sure that, you know, the, the trace of this illicit money is get lost and and you can benefit enormously from that. And a lot of uh, this illicit money, you know, went back and forth between the government and the business tycoons and and a lot of corruption and and when we highlighted that, you know, we're shown to go to jail, and 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 that's a that's a big problem. But for many of the voters of Erdogan, you know, politicians, you know, every politician is corrupt, corrupt, and uh, it's not surprising that Erdogan is corrupt too. But it doesn't really matter because you know he's also you know, giving back to the society. And there's a very, you know, uh, the many critics of Turkish president, uh, you know, quip that, you know, yes, uh, the, the supporters of Erdogan said, yes, he's, you know, stealing, but at least he's also giving some back. And uh, and, and that's uh, the, the moral uh, corruption uh, in this phrase is mind-boggling. But that's true. That's a reality that we have to face, that people do not, Uh, are not alienated when they see that their leaders are corrupt, as long as they give some of them back to the public uh, uh, something that did not happen in the past.
3: Yeah, it seems like the louder we uh, yell against the corruption of others, the more the followers will let those leaders get away with it, right? Um, Do
4: we have time for another question?
3: Sure. um, Where do you see important similarities in terms of turkey and the u.s is there anything and this is going to sound a little maybe over the top is there anything that the u.s can learn from the turkish experience
4: i think uh, we as turkish journalists are both victim and witness of how uh, populist leaders could hijack democracy so uh, we have a lot of experience that we could offer to societies that are at that risk. Uh, I mean, comparing Turkey to United States in terms of uh, democracies will not be uh, that reasonable because as I said, Turkey did not, did never have a a perfect democracy or full-fledged democracy. No country maybe have full-fledged democracy, perfect democracy, but uh, as far as America is concerned, I see that there is very important tradition of institutions, very important tradition of media freedom, freedom of expression, and uh, a, a very uh, vibrant uh, society, independence of uh, judiciary. If those uh, institutions and if those values preserved, I don't see any danger for for, for American uh, society. But when I look at what's happening in Europe, for instance, I see that you should the Americans should not get democratic rights granted as well. Because look at what happened in uh, Britain. He supported supported Brexit. And uh, look at the popularity of Le Pen in a country, I mean, very uh, enlightened uh, as France. So what's happening in uh, Netherlands? He he was the second biggest party of uh, builders. So there's a kind of worldwide trend in terms of people who feel neglected to reach and to support populist people who uh, support uh, simple fixes to complex problems mm. so that is the, that's the that is the uh, key issue that is uh, effective in Britain in America in Hungary or in other in Turkey as well so uh, I think very important uh, issue is to preserve uh, independence of judiciary because whatever is happening that we are as journalists uh, describing as awful are happening with the help of judiciary cooperating with 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 a a political leader or with a political party so this is this is very important to to look at and to preserve and there should be a very uh, strong red line not to pass uh, towards any kind of politicization of uh, judiciary and preserving independence of uh, judiciary is is very important but uh, the other thing is we, we i think uh, in 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 democratic countries as i look at our experience should not uh, put themselves into trap of polarization because polarization is helping to populist leader so you should not Act in a way that helps the polarization. If if a populist leader says that please fight with your neighbor, you should come together with your neighbor. <laughs> so this sh- should be your act, your action. And uh, the one thing is the biggest mistake would be by the mainstream media here, for instance, in in by liberal media or mainstream media, to put uh, those people who supported uh, Trump into the basket of uh, his. Uh, his, 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 his small world that mm-hmm. that would be that would be very uh, bad. So there should be a separation of mistakes by uh, Trump and uh, those who supported him with very uh, good uh, ideas, with very important maybe healthy expectations. So uh, I mean uh, this we had unfortunately in Turkey, the establishment, indeed created figure like Erdogan by their alienation of the conservative parts of society, and they, they indeed unified mm. them with Erdogan by making some persecution against them, by not listening to them, by not taking them seriously. So that's very important for the opposition party, for Democrats here, to, take, to listen why people supported uh, Trump and what what was their goals and uh, the the focus of uh, for instance media coverage should not be the people but should be the mistakes whoever does it whether he is a democratic congressman or a republican congressman uh, so those uh, points are uh, very valuable and there is a treasury of uh, experiences in terms of media judiciary and the uh, relations between government and the people in, in Turkey, I think that will be studied more uh, from now on. And that, that could be important as if not to repeat the mistakes that we did in Turkey in other countries.
0: Hamid and Mahir, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a thank real you. Thank pleasure you. Thank you. to have you on Trustees Without Borders. You've been listening to Trustees Without Borders, a podcast program about people, building community and relationships for change. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Trustees Without Borders is a program of the Institute for Policy and Governance. You can find more podcasts on the website of IPG at www.ipg.vt.edu. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, remember that building community begins with us and our relationships for change that include and benefit us all.